0: Welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host, our guest author, Michael R. Heinlein. His book, Glorifying Christ, the Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI, published by our friends over at Our Sunday Visitor, naturally available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. Good to see you again, Michael. Thank you. Uh, We had the happenstance a couple of years ago to meet at at a particular event, and you had mentioned to me at that time that you were working, I guess, on this book, and I told you, I love Cardinal George, and when it gets published, let me know, and, and you were you were good to your word.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure to work on this book. For- well,
0: what's interesting, too, and I think it must be for you as a work, I'm sure it was a, 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 an effort of love on your behalf, t- There, in the church today, it seems like there's so few heroes left, and I think and a lot of us saw in uh, Cardinal George, someone who spoke up for the truth in, in a very loving way who overcame his own childhood polio, uh, was turned down in his own diocese to be a priest and then became a missionary priest and only to come back and be a great cardinal in in Chicago. What was it that attracted you about Cardinal George?
1: Well, I remember uh, growing up outside of Chicago in northwest Indiana, a 12-year-old boy when he was appointed. And I liked his laugh <laughs> mm-hmm. and I liked his authenticity, he seemed like a real person. But then, of course, I, I came to know his great intellect, his clarity of thought, his nuanced ability to teach the faith. And uh, as a college student, I would read his column very regularly. And then by the time he died, mm-hmm. I was like so many of us. What can we do to keep his legacy alive? Because it's so mm-hmm. rich and so necessary for the church today.
0: Right. And besides his polio, then he he, he battled cancer for many years, right, as far as That's suffering. Right.
1: Yeah. Suffering. If you want to know Cardinal George, you need to know that he was a man who suffered all his life from the polio at 13 and then the last nine Mm -hmm. years of his life with cancer. His sister told me this was a man who never had a day without severe pain. Right.
0: Now, the foreword's by our friend Archbishop Jose H. Gomez from L.A. Did he offer to do this? Did you approach him about it and why him? I asked Archbishop Gomez to contribute to the book because
1: he had just finished up his term as president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference as I was completing the book, and uh, of course I had talked to Archbishop Gomez several times while I was working on this book, and he had some really personal insights Mm. to Cardinal George. He really admired him, and I think Archbishop Gomez carries on some of Cardinal George's legacy in
0: many ways, so it seemed like a good fit. Right. It's interesting too, I was unaware until I read the book about his connection because of being in Yakima, Mm. and the high percentage of Hispanics, obviously connecting with Archbishop Gomez then a priest, and that they worked together and knew each other for many years dealing with Hispanic ministry, right?
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. I think Archbishop Gomez was in Houston, and our Bishop George then of Yakima at the time, he was assigned there in 1990. And at that time, it was a majority Hispanic population, mm-hmm. which was a rarity back then. And um, so they would they would interact quite a bit and collaborate on different things right. through the years with uh, Hispanic ministry meetings and so on.
0: He makes the point. He said he knew, meaning Cardinal George, knew that the church must reclaim the his, that history of the founding of the uh, uh, in the United States. Because I think he wanted to write so, because Gomez always talked about the founding and the, the the Spanish aspect of it, and George I think wanted to talk about the French. Uh, right. martyrs, right, the uh, the martyrs from uh, the Jesuit martyrs, and he says here, he knew that the church must reclaim that history not as a distant memory, but as a legacy that we are responsible for. Uh, and he was also very confident in the power of the gospel. Did you see that in his writings and in the people you talked to?
1: Oh, absolutely. Time and again, when I would speak to folks, when I would encounter himself through his own words. Uh, it was very clear that Cardinal George was really an evangelist Mm -hmm. par excellence and was really carrying on the rich legacy of evangelists who brought the gospel to our continent.
0: Right. Uh, Archbishop Gomez says in the biography that he himself learned a number of things about his friend, mentor, notably his spiritual struggles while leading the Archdiocese of Chicago. What would be some examples of those spiritual struggles he had?
1: I think that uh, if you look at his tenure in Chicago uh, it was dominated by the clergy sex abuse crisis and so those sorts of situations that he had to encounter were definitely a, a cross for him to bear and he often bore that silently just as he had done throughout his whole life with his various illnesses so a lot of people didn't know about the internal anguish that he went through in dealing with the various scandals he encountered.
0: Right. You say some aspects of my compiling the manuscript went smoothly while others were more challenging. What would be an example of what was challenged and who closed the doors on you?
1: Well, you know, I found whenever doors were closed, God opened them up, which told me I should proceed. Um, there were certainly uh, various obstacles mm-hmm. in, in writing a book on someone who died rather recently. Mm-hmm. Some people were hesitant to talk and you'd have to work around and, and develop relationships with people. Whereas right. if they had died 30 years ago, it might not have made much right, of difference. Right, because
0: some of the people who might have been involved, are still alive. Exactly. And you're concerned about that. You also indicated, besides the fact that he endured a lot of pain, it's a great line, and I think it's so prescient for today. He would say, don't tell me how you feel, tell me what you think. That's right. He said that
1: quite a bit. Uh, He was a philosopher by by trade, of course. He had a doctorate in philosophy. And uh, even going back to the time when he was a professor in the late 60s and early 70s, -hmm. he would use that line. And he would very much want to hear what people were thinking because he thought that, you know, that was where we could really get into the objectivity right. and really
0: seek truth. Well, the confusion seems to be today that people uh, transpose those, and they think that when they say, I'm thinking, they're really expressing their feelings.
1: Yes, absolutely. Right. And you know, I think some people would look at that line and say, well, Cardinal George wasn't a man who had feelings. No, he was a human being, of course he had feelings. But I think that he was trying to get at what's the common bond, what's the unifier, what's objective and what's true.
0: Right. In the introduction, you talk about, I guess you got uh, something that he filled out in 92. I guess there was an interview, actually, that was done. asked him about a couple of things. His favorite foods were seafood and pasta. His favorite ice cream was chocolate. His favorite movie at the time was 2001, A Space Odyssey. And it was his favorite childhood memory was being carried on his father's shoulders through the snow.
1: Yeah. You think about this young boy who uh, really had to give up what he was imagining for his life at 13 Mm -hmm. and uh, the suffering that came along with that. And here you have his favorite memory as a child being taken care of, being nurtured, being loved. Right. And that was something that I think he saw his suffering as, as um,
0: you know, enabling him to do as well. So it's I think right. very telling. Right, very Citizen Kane-like with Rosebud, you know. <laughs> That's in, right. In some sense, something very simple. Yeah. Uh, memory. Solzhenitsyn. What was his connection with Solzhenitsyn?
1: Yeah, he was asked the question in this interview: If you could be any famous person, who would right. you be? He said, "I'd be Solzhenitsyn," and I think that you know, reflecting on that. Shultzenitsyn, of course, was a Soviet dissident and he suffered a great deal by being imprisoned and I think that Cardinal George saw him, as many have, as a prophet, mm-hmm. perhaps for our own country in our own time mm-hmm. and uh, you wonder if Cardinal George uh, maybe wanted to live his experience so that he could see what we might be up against.
0: Right, because the famous line is, men have forgotten God, that's why all this has happened and you go on to say that George himself saw the shifts in our culture in in our society. In fact, MANY OF THE QUOTES YOU HAVE HERE ARE THINGS THAT HE SAID CERTAINLY IN THE 90s IF NOT EARLIER THAN THAT WHICH ARE are VERY MUCH, YOU KNOW, PROPHETIC REALLY.
1: Oh, yeah. He really had a way to see things as they really were. Mm. But not only that, he could play things out ten steps down the road. And often people would think, oh wait, hang on a minute, you know. Cardinal George, I don't know that you're really seeing this as it should be. But he he could see things down the road, and he could really be that prophetic Mm. kind of figure that the church needed.
0: Right, and the fact that he, he always spoke about the family and as the basic building block of civilization and feared the government was no longer protecting the family. Well, it's not protecting any. Of the family is attacking it these days.
1: That's right. And he, as Archbishop of Chicago, had to shut down adoptive services because of uh, gay marriage laws in the state of Illinois. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most painful things he ever had to do as Archbishop, because he saw the destruction of the family in
0: our culture. So, uh, did you ever play kettle drums, the timpani, or, or did you just like to name them for some particular reason? <laughs> Explain.
1: Well, this was because Cardinal George said in this same interview in 1992, if He had a dream job. What would it be? He said to play the timpani in a symphony orchestra. And uh, again, you know, one of these simple things, because he really, Mm -hmm. deep down inside, was a very simple man.
0: Well, speaking of that, one of the chapters, and you allude to it in the introduction, is something called Simply Catholicism. What is that? In
1: 1998, when he was named a cardinal, he had given a homily, and uh, it became something of a a rather... uh, divisive thing because many people bristled at it but he he said that that liberal Catholicism is an exhausted project Mm -hmm. and what we need is simply Catholicism and so what he was advocating for was that we as Catholics live the faith not in an ideological polarized way but really adhering to the objective truth of the faith living out Catholicism
0: in all its fullness that means to love justice but also to love truth so how, it was 13 when he was, uh, 1950, when he was hit with polio. Uh, how did he react to that?
1: Well, he was lying in bed, he remembered, uh, feeling sorry for himself. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a providential thing that uh, a neighbor whose daughter also had polio came and visited him. And he said something to Cardinal George that really shaped the rest of his life. He mm-hmm. said, You know, remember that. People are always going to be worse off than you, so never feel sorry for yourself. And that really changed his perspective. And um, you know, I also heard another story from the Cardinal's mm-hmm. sister that when he was hospitalized during that polio for about four months, um, the man who shared a room with him reported to their mother that Cardinal George would often talk with him, but then he'd fall silent and when mm. he fell silent he would look over and Cardinal George would be looking up at the cross really and I think that that was how he could make sense of what was happening to his
0: life so in your sense uh, of, of the researching this book do you think he had a vocation early on yes he he had said himself that he felt that God was calling him to
1: be a priest on the day of his first communion. Really? Okay. Yeah, and so um, he always looked up to his parish pastor. He was always found around the parish helping, serving mm-hmm. mass, what have you. And he really was intent on becoming a priest from a rather young age. He used to play act mass in the family home with his sister and uh, the mother, Mrs. George, had to stop them because they were lighting candles and nearly burned the house oh, down. Man, <laughs> not a good idea. In chapter
0: yeah. 8, a missionary bishop there's a quote from here you put in from him. The bishop is the center of unity, visible unity. The Holy Spirit is the center of invisible unity in the church. So you try to keep people together for the sake of the mission. Whatever is necessary for that purpose is what I try to do. It's interesting too because sometimes people can get upset when they see things going on in a particular diocese or a parish, and they wonder why isn't the bishop being a little stronger about it. And he's really talking about that. That unifying factor that the bishop has to take into account, right?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a constant balancing act, right? That he has to be a man of unity, he has to bring wholeness to the church, But at the same time, that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that he ignores everything. And so, you know, Cardinal George would be critiqued by being too hard-line, but he'd also be critiqued for being too soft. But in the end, that's, I think, because he was always after that unifying force that Christ brings to the church.
0: Right. And and from a pastoral perspective, he made his goal when he first became uh, Archbishop of Chicago to make a pastoral visit to every one of the 378 parishes. I don't think they have to visit as many anymore, unfortunately. And you mentioned that he actually went there probably more than once. I also thought it was interesting in the sense of his humility that most of the meetings with politicians, you say, took place behind closed doors and he rarely allowed his photographs to be taken with them. And he also, this was, I thought, interesting, greatly bristled at the thinking that made a bishop, that a bishop was the equivalent, basically, for the church of a CEO of a business. That's
1: right. When you look at Cardinal George's life as a bishop, he was really a pastor. Mm -hmm. He loved being with his people, he visited the parishes, he'd often be the last one to leave an event, but Cardinal George was not someone who saw his role as a businessman. And he really, you know, there was a line that one of his staff Mm -hmm. told me, when St. Peter meets me at the gates, I don't have to say how much money in my checking account. I have to account for how many souls I saved.
0: Right. He says, when we think of the church using only business corporation as a model, we forget that our ties to Christ and to one another in his body are closer than our ties to our blood family or to any corporate or civil associate. Those who hear the word of God and keep it are Jesus' mother, brothers and sisters. Through baptism in the Eucharist, the life of the blessed Trinity courses through our veins.
1: Yes, and I think that you can see in Cardinal George's life the reality of what he's speaking about because he proclaimed Christ wherever he was. He would take heat for it he would be celebrated for it, but at the end of the day, he knew that that's what he needed to do, that his job wasn't to necessarily figure out how to redraw the maps of Europe and rearrange parishes and so on, as he said once, but his job Mm -hmm. was really to bring Christ to the people so that Christ could live in us and Christ lived in him.
0: Right, and this is a quote I was thinking about, I guess it was 1987, you note here, that he observed on several occasions how the church was destined for a period of institutional decline, which I think it's fair to say we're going through, right?
1: Absolutely. And he he saw that, you know, he was writing as Cardinal Archbishop also uh, in the early 2000s saying, look, we have all these buildings, either we fill them or we have to close them. We are collapsing as an institution. And so we really need to think about how are we being apostles? How are we bringing Christ to the people? How are we allowing the church to flourish? Not necessarily by keeping up structures. So what's his connection with Benjamin Disraeli? (laughs) <laughs> uh, Russell Shaw had mentioned that right. he was kind of like a Disraeli-type figure when he uh, commented on his appointment to Chicago. And Cardinal George certainly arrived in Chicago at a time when he had a lot of disunity. Right. And so uh, that's what I think Shaw was getting at.
0: What I thought was interesting, too, was obviously he came in after Bernadine, and, but one of the interesting people he was kind of friendly with was Father Greeley.
1: Yes, believe it or not, Father Andrew Greeley, controversial priest and author, um, who would be considered, you know, a left of center. Right. And uh, Father Greeley regarded Cardinal George as the best Archbishop Chicago ever had. And uh, he also greatly admired his authenticity, his character. Right. Sometimes they'd go on the opera together.
0: Right. You wouldn't agree that his detractors who called him Francis, the corrector, were correct, right?
1: No, I don't think that's accurate at all. I think that Cardinal George was someone who needed to be a shepherd. Mm-hmm. That flowed through his veins and so sometimes he'd have to correct things. That right. was part of his job.
0: Like general absolution, like cutting that out.
1: Exactly, <laughs> like, or other liturgical right. abuses.
0: Well, this I like. Preach the gospel, go and make disciples, baptize, teach. Instead we are arguing about where the furnishers should be in the sanctuary. So he he was concerned that there was disunity, but not only disunity, but arguing about things that weren't that important.
1: That's right. Yeah. He. he but but at the same time, he could also. Uh, be very concerned about some of those things because it's it's trying to prioritize. You know, when he arrived, for instance, at Mundelein Seminary on his mm-hmm. day of appointment in Chicago, he said, "Where are the kneelers?" Right. He wasn't arguing about furniture, though. He was showing that it's really central to our right. life of prayer and our life of uh, devotion to the Lord that we need to know how to kneel when we pray. Right. So he he was concerned about you know things like that, but at the same time, he was not somebody who got lost in meaningless details
0: ever. Right. He said bishops are not the church, he added, both the liberals and conservatives put too much emphasis on the bishops. What do you think he meant by that?
1: Well, I think that he often saw bishops uh, kind of as the uh, the center of Catholic arguments on things, that the bishop should do this, or the bishop shouldn't have done that. And I think he th- he was very concerned about that, because uh, it took the onus off of the faithful. Was, you know, he was very much a bishop of the Second Vatican Council and saw the right. lay apostolate as part of the lifeblood of the Church. And so he really did not want the bishop to be the only one that mattered in the Church.
0: Well, he describes himself, I guess... Uh, Self description is Francis is your neighbor. In the chapter, you have a good neighbor, and that he was very open to dialoguing with others and that was really important to him in his public ministry.
1: Yes, he was very involved with interreligious dialogue, ecumenical dialogue. One of the priests of of Chicago who I spoke to about that said, you know, uh, he might not have been the archbishop to everybody in Chicago, but he was their cardinal. They all looked up to him. They all admired him. They all saw him as a friend. He was able to build bridges with people that really no one else had been able to do in Chicago.
0: One of the most interesting chapters, I thought, was chapter 12, A Missionary to the Culture. He said that the culture in which we evangelize needs to be evangelized because evangelizing means bringing people to the faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say here, the internal threats of the church's mission that he identified looking at both sides here saying on the left the church's teachings on sexual morality and the nature of ordained priesthood and of the church herself are publicly opposed as are the bishop on the right the church's teachings might be accepted but bishops who do not govern exactly and to the last detail and that is expected are also publicly opposed
1: yes I think he had that incisive ability to show Where's the left wrong? Where's the right wrong? How can we be simply Catholic, you know? And I think that Cardinal George, again, was a model for how we can both believe what the church mm. teaches on ordination and on the sacraments, but we can also be some, you know, uh, times hesitant to accept the fact that the bishop doesn't always have you know, the answers, right. and he, he should be someone who consults his faithful as well, and he, he did that.
0: In the section dealing later in there with on evangelization is not beating people over the head with a Bible or a catechism or our own spiritual experience stridently and repeatedly, but it does mean more, and I thought this was good, more than the quiet witness of gospel living and Christian service. Evangelization is sharing one's relation with Jesus Christ, which begins in the evangelizer's own repentance and conversion. So it's not just this kind of, well, use some words if you need it, that some people Forward as being what we should be doing.
1: That's right. He was talking about being true disciples, being authentic disciples. That's how we're going to attract other people to Christ, to show that Christ dwells in me and Christ should dwell in you. And he did that
0: by the way he lived his own life. He was a model. Right. According to George Catholic, you wrote, Catholics are not to impose their faith out of a sense that they are superior to others, but instead are to, quote unquote, consider carefully our own hearts and speak only from the sense of gratitude for the gifts that God basically has given us. You go on to say, one model of evangelization which George turned to in his pastoral letter on evangelization was Saint Therese of Les
1: Yes, the patroness of the missions, the patroness of proclaiming the good news. He was very close to her as an oblate of Mary Immaculate because as missionaries they relied upon her intercession mm-hmm. quite a bit. And so he saw, you know, uh, Therese, patroness of mission mm-hmm as someone who lived her life in a carmel closed off from the world is a real model for us in how to proclaim the gospel.
0: On something we're, we're, you know it's kind of passe on one level but we're still dealing with it in the section here that had to do with same-sex marriage at the time he he mentioned uh, or you mentioned as for the legalization of same-sex marriage George issued a letter signed by his auxiliary bishops etc. He argued that it would be against the common good of society He observed that it will have long-term consequences because law, and this is really important, laws teach, they tell us what is acceptable and what is not. And most people conform to the dictates of their respective society, at least in the short run. And that's a trouble we tend to then uh, kind of equate if it's legal, it's moral
1: oh yeah absolutely and he knew that in american culture what was the common denominator it's the law Mm -hmm. you know our our society our culture our governments built on the law and so he saw the power
0: that law had
1: and he was very concerned about the direction that laws were taking us
0: right he goes on to say catholics who consider the acceptance of same-sex marriage as an example of compassion justice and inclusion these sentiments and this is really good can further be used to argue in his column to justify everything from eugenics to euthanasia, and and that's a problem. That's a Mother Angelica used to call it misguided or false compassion.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think that plays in, of course, to Benedict 16th line about you know the dictatorship of relativism. That that relativism that we uh, are so governed by sometimes is really uh, rooted in this false compassion, and he was very concerned that that was what would guide us in right. a in our culture.
0: He also saw the secularism. Uh, coming. George often expressed that one of his primary concerns regarding American culture was that religious truth is no longer a public virtue. That goes back to 92.
1: Yes, that's right. Again, a very prophetic quality to Cardinal George. And he had that famous line where he said, you know, I would die in bed and my successor would die in jail. His successor would die a martyr in the public square. But oftentimes the last part is left off, which he regretted that his successor would pick up the shards of a broken culture, broken society and bring them to wholeness and healing.
0: Right, that the bishop who follows possibly martyred, his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society, slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human society and that's why as much as we know we're dealing in tough times we have to have hope and trust that at the end of the day this will still work out the way God wants it to work out.
1: Absolutely and he, he knew history, history repeats itself so he was preparing us in a way with with this analogy by helping us get ready for what was down the road yeah. but he wanted us to go through it with hope to know that at the end of the cross comes the
0: resurrection. So in researching this book what was the thing that surprised you the most?
1: I didn't realize how much he did suffer. Mm-hmm. I knew he had polio, I knew he wore a brace, I knew he fell a lot, I knew he had cancer, I knew his bar- bladder was removed. BUT I DIDN'T KNOW THE AMOUNT OF SUFFERING THAT HE REALLY WENT
0: THROUGH. WHAT DO YOU THINK the, THE BIGGEST MISCONCEPTION THE AVERAGE PERSON WOULD HAVE ABOUT CARDINAL GEORGE THAT YOU FOUND NOT TO BE TRUE?
1: WELL, THAT HE WAS AN EGGHEAD OUT OF TOUCH WITH HIS PEOPLE that he was this intellect who was lost in his head, not at all. He was a consummate pastor who truly loved his people, who gave of himself daily despite the pain, despite the suffering, offering himself constantly so that others could come to Christ.
0: Now I remember talking to you a couple of years ago when you were were working on the book. So how long did it take you to actually put this book together?
1: I was working on this book over six years. Um, My wife and I had three kids in the process while I was working on this book. So in some ways it's like my fourth child. (laughs) So When do you write? I write on the evenings, uh, weekends, whenever I can get time. My wife and kids would leave for months at a time to go to my in-laws while I was working on this
0: book. Really? So any other books in the works?
1: Not right now. I'm just uh, taking a little bit of a breather and uh, hopefully continuing to spread the news of Cardinal George's fascinating life.
0: Well he is fascinating. He was a great man, glorifying Christ, the life of Cardinal Francis E. George O.M.I. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. for, For writing this book. It was a great uh, gift. He's a wonderful example of the church. You should check that out. This book's available through the EWGN Religious Catalog, EWGNRC.com, all things Catholic. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you for joining us right here on EWGN's Bookmark. We'll hope to see you next time.